Good Tuesday. This is Ozarks at Large for November 15th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks for being with us. Later this hour, Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis talks with Delfio Marsalis. He'll perform Sunday night with the Uptown Jazz Orchestra at Walton Arts Center. First, did you know Saturday is World Toilet Day? The global observation is designed to place awareness on the fact that more than a billion people in the world don't have access to a toilet. LifeWater International, a nonprofit based in Bentonville, will take note. There's going to be uh, some some porta potties that are going to be wrapped with signage, and uh, they're actually not going to be open. And the idea is that people will walk up, looking at this this opportunity to uh, to use a, a porta potty, and uh, but they're not going to be accessible. And the goal is to have bring again awareness to this, be thankful for what I have, and realize that there are people around the world that don't have access to these types of of latrines or these toilets. That's Randy Valentine, the chief development officer of LifeWater. Last week, Randy came to our studio with Dave Levan, the CEO of LifeWater International. Dave says the organization was founded in California in 1977. And what's kind of cool is we, we are 45 years old, but in those 45 years, we have changed how we do things, um, but our why has remained the same. What's an example of how it has changed? Is it based on technology? It's based on a lot of things. I think uh, technology plays a part in allowing us to be global and see our teams as one, we're in five countries and to see ourselves as one global team. But the other uh, significant change is when we said we need to move away from just safe water and also tackle improved hygiene and improved sanitation. So that's toilets, hand washing. And uh, combining those things together, it leads to a much higher impact and sustainable impact uh, than just doing one or the other. And that leads us to a nice segue about World Toilet Day, which is a day for those of us fortunate enough to have plumbing and, and, and ability to have hygiene in toilets to know that there are still many people who don't, right? Yes, 1.7 billion people do not have adequate sanitation. And of those 1.7 billion, almost a half a billion practice open defecation because they have no sanitation. And so when you think about safe water and sanitation together, if you bring safe water into a context where there's open defecation or not proper sanitation, or not proper hand washing, hygiene type practices, it becomes unsafe very, very quickly. But if you have uh, adequate sanitation, adequate hygiene, and safe water together, that's where you have sustainable transformation. 1.7 billion people. It's staggering. So what can we do to reduce that number of 1.7 billion? I think part of it is is creating this awareness, is letting people understand that that is an actual reality. Those of us here in the western parts of the world um, have a difficult time understanding that there are people who actually still open defecate. It's just not something we think about. And um, it, 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 it truly is something that uh, that we need to create more awareness around because the reality is there are a lot of people around the world that still don't have access to dignified latrines. Creating awareness uh, and then it's also in, in, in how you design the solutions, uh, how you walk along uh, communities that don't have basic access to water, don't have toilets, don't have uh, proper hygiene uh, facilities, and how you walk along and help them develop. Um, because candidly, when you don't have safe water, you don't have adequate toilets, your whole life is spent with how do I get water? How do I get, family, get water for my family? How do I keep them healthy? Mm-hmm. You don't have time to think about building a career, starting a business, school, education, all those other wonderful things. Yeah, it's like this pyramid of problems. I mean, that's one of the most basic, and, and it would just build from there, health and, and security and things like that. Yes, yeah, so it's in, exactly. So it's in designing a program that will allow for sustainable transformation of a community. And it's not a quick fix. It's not just go bring a water solution. Our vision of a healthy village is what uh, LifeWater has named our strategy, and it's a three-year process of walking along a community, living in that community, walking along that community for three years and helping them home by home develop hand washing and latrines and school by school, church by church. So the whole community is transforming over that three-year period. And somewhere about year two is when we actually bring the water point in with safe water. But it's getting them to a place where they see the changes in behavior and they own the process. And it's them lifting themselves out of poverty, us mm-hmm. just walking alongside them and giving them equipment to do that. 
Are we talking infrastructure that has to that has to be developed? Yes. Uh, the first part is really behavioral change. So we have teams, let's say we have a program of 20,000 people, and we'll have a team of, say, 15 that actually uh, folks from whatever country we're in that will move to this remote area, and then they'll mobilize maybe even hundreds of people from churches, schools, the, the people in town who are change makers. They'll go home by home. There might be 3,000 homes in uh, uh, area that we're working, and they'll go home by home, helping each home become certified healthy, which means they do seven things. They build a latrine, they build a hand washing station, a drying rack. There's seven things that they do, and then as they become healthy, then we start talking to schools and churches. And then once we've got that going pretty, uh, pretty well, then we're looking at what type of water design is the most sustainable for this community. Is it a, a traditional well? Is it uh, a capped spring or is it some schematic where we're pumping water far away but we're able to pipe it to a village that, that doesn't have access to water? So there's a whole uh, creativity to how we engineer the water points. I think many people will be surprised, maybe not as many as 10 years or 15 years ago because this is a unique place, but a lot of people say, why is life water in Bentonville? That's a really good question. Thanks for asking that. We are celebrating our 45th year in existence. And for 45 of those years, we were in California and we were doing work in four countries. And uh, th throughout COVID, we made the decision that we need to be more global and we need to look and feel like a global organization. And that means we have 180 staff across five countries. About 30 are in the U.S. and everybody else is from the countries we work in and works in those countries. So we need to find ways that we could elevate the voices, our voices globally. So the first thing we did is we decided to create two headquarters hubs. So we have a hub in East Africa in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And so we started looking at what roles should be in Africa near most of our programs. So like our engineering function is now in East Africa. So as we were doing this, we thought in the U.S., where is a good place for us to be for the future? And we picked Bentonville. It's a great place to be. There's a global outlook. There's a really engaged, uh, great workforce. Lots of different companies are here, lots of different ideas. There's an entrepreneurial spirit here, a lot of outdoors, central to the U.S., um, and very accessible. So we decided to have Bentonville, Bentonville or Northwest Arkansas be our U.S. hub. I, yeah, that makes sense because, I mean, Saturday on the square, you could have someone from Walmart or General Mills, or goodness knows which company, seeing this, these QR codes and getting information, and you don't know where that will go. Absolutely. And they could be from Walmart, South Africa, or they right. could be from General Mills you know, uh, in the UK, or from some other. There's, there's a global influence here that actually helps us as we look to be global. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for your time. Thank yep, you. Guys. You're welcome. Dave LeVan is the CEO of LifeWater International, based in Bentonville. We also heard from Randy Valentine, the Chief Development Officer at LifeWater. You can find out more about their work at LifeWater.org. The group's work to make more people aware of the global challenges when it comes to sanitation and water can be seen on the Bentonville Square Saturday, which is recognized as World Toilet Day. On the latest Points of Departure we take a trip to the Eternal City. So this is the old part of the palazzo. It's with the Renaissance Baroque part. And then... Buongiorno. And then on this side, you have the modern part. This was, was built by Pietro Gabrielli. We visit the University of Arkansas Rome Center to talk with students and faculty about how new perspectives can change the way we think, create, and learn. Listen at KUAF.com or search Points of Departure anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. A novel residential development to fully accommodate neurodiverse adults is under development in southwest Fayetteville. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. Ashton McCombs IV stands this breezy, warm November morning on a pasture in the foothills of Mount Kessler off Cato Springs Road. He's executive director of Supporting Lifelong Success Community, SLS for short. Yes, so SLS Community is a 501c3 nonprofit that is grounded in the mission of making essential resources accessible for neurodiverse adults and their families. And that includes vocational resources, residential, clinical um, services, really, and, and at the center of it is relationship and integration and community. 
Neurodiverse refers to a group of individuals who are neurodivergent. Their neurological development is atypical. Neurodiversity celebrates the diverse abilities of people that have conditions ranging from autism spectrum disorder to Down syndrome, ADHD, and many others. Certain neurodivergent people are able to live independently, but those with significant cognitive, intellectual, or social impairment require support. We're, we're focused on neurodiverse adults because that is where the need um, is really great after high school. There's a thing called the services cliff where a lot of the funding um, that's available and accessible uh, from government sources uh, early on in a neurodiverse individual's uh, lifespan, those go away You know, after, after you graduate from the school-based system of supports. SLS Community will house this population in a state-of-the-art residential campus adjacent to Kessler Mountain Regional Park on property purchased in 2019 for $6 million by South Cato Springs Holding, LLC, an impact partner of SLS Community. The campus itself will be a portion of the 230-acre site, um, likely around a third and in the rest of it, it'll be integrated with the South Cato Springs development, which includes commercial, retail, residential, entertainment um, sectors. SLS community will be constructed in phases, beginning with a medical clinic. The two main catalytic anchor partners on the South Cato and SLS community project are UAMS, who SLS community has partnered with to build an outpatient uh, multi-specialty medical clinic that provides services really to the broader community, but has special adaptations for the neurodiverse community. McComb says clinical specialists with Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health in Pennsylvania and the May Institute in Massachusetts, both leading neurodiverse treatment centers, are project consultants. The other impact partner is Phygenics, an independent water management company that works to ensure safety and efficiency in public and private facility plumbing systems, a technology firm co-founded in 2004 by McCombs' father, McCombs, a Marine Corps veteran who later attained an MBA, is carrying forward with his father's business and Genesis plans for SLS community, initiated in 2016. Ashton P. the third, unexpectedly died a year ago. His spouse, Elizabeth McCombs, continues as founder and board member. The idea of SLS community was, was really born out of my little sister, Anna's experience with, with autism. Um, she deals with with severe autism and she's beautiful and has an incredible sense of humor and uh, is highly intelligent but she she does struggle with self-injurious behavior and and um, you know severe behavior so uh, the options are very few for that end of the spectrum uh, really nationwide and so she was um, placed in a psychiatric institute on the east coast kennedy krieger institute for two years and uh, we just couldn't replicate the programming back here in Arkansas and the, the options weren't there and uh, she spent some more time up in Boston and uh, kind of through that experience and meeting with so many other families that were dealing with the same thing uh, my parents decided to uh, create a place for people like Anna and really across the spectrum of diverse needs in the neurodiverse community. Anna McCombs, now an adult, resides in Stewart Place Home and Farm, operated by SLS Community as a prototype, a sensory-appropriate facility staffed with support professionals who provide applied behavioral analysis, whole health, nutrition, and exercise therapies. A preliminary concept plan for South Cato Springs development and SLS Community was drawn up by Kraft & Tull, Core Architects, and the Office of Skills Development, a division of the Arkansas Department of Commerce, and presented in late September at a Fayetteville City Council agenda session. From the beginning, really, with the South Cato project, uh, both South Cato Springs LLC and um, SLS community have been in collaboration with the Economic Vitality Department at the City of Fayetteville um, and the Chamber of Commerce 
to um, see how we can integrate efforts on the South Cato and SLS project. Last March, U.S. Congressman Steve Womack appropriated a $3 million community project fund award to install a sewer system on this site. The city of Fayetteville has allocated $3.5 million in economic development bond funding to construct an access route extending from Cato Springs Road to Kessler Mountain Park. Yes, so in the, in the SLS community campus, um, that will include housing, a community center, a recreation center, and then all of the other amenities uh, that are recreational, entertainment, that are interspersed throughout the South Cato uh, development, which is directly adjacent to the SLS community campus, will be um, accessible you know, also to those residents. So there, there's full integration between um, the campus and the development. A draft landscape rendering reveals a constellation of SLS community housing with trails leading to a village green, a small farm and vineyard, a recreation pond, a nature meadow, the UAMS medical clinic, and a services district, all adjacent to South Cato Springs development. More SLS community development details will be disclosed as plans are formalized, approved, and funded. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. In memory of Ashton McCombs III, an SLS-5K for neurodiversity will take place at Kessler Mountain Regional Park Saturday morning, December 10th. Registration and details can be found at slscommunity.org. There is still more college soccer to be played in Fayetteville this year. Razorback Field will host second-round and Sweet 16 matches in the NCAA National Tournament this weekend. Arkansas, who shut out Missouri State 6-0 in the first round of the NCAA tournament, will face Ohio State Friday night, first kick set for 6-30. Earlier Friday at 4, Memphis will meet Mississippi State in another second-round match. Winners of those two Friday matches will then face each other Sunday evening at 5 in the Sweet 16. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville presents their latest exhibit, in the Making, Ideas Come to Life, on view now through May 2023. Featuring the process of making, including all the messy middle steps from idea to final product. The experience offers hands-on learning through interactive activities and trial and error. More information at amazium.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks so much for being with us. Mary Church Terrell was a giant when it came to advocating for the rights of others. She worked with Ida B. Wells on high-profile anti-lynching campaigns. She was a founder of the National Association of Colored Women, a tireless worker for women's suffrage, and a founder of the NAACP. Her life is detailed in the book Unceasing Militant, written by Allison Parker. Parker, a professor of history and chair of the Department of History at the University of Delaware, was this semester's Hartman Hot Speaker, presented by the University of Arkansas Department of History. During her time on campus, she came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk about the book and about the life of Mary Church Terrell. She was uh, born during the Civil War, and her parents were both enslaved, and they were what we might call biracial, because their parents were both their black enslaved mothers and their white enslavers. So she had two white grandfathers. And they were emancipated during the Civil War um, when Tennessee um, became part of the Union. And so in 64, they become free. And her parents uh, leveraged their connections with their white fathers to start businesses. And both of them became prosperous. Her mother in uh, hair making uh, hair pieces for white women and um, 
her father in making building saloons, and eventually he created Beale Street. And so the Beale Street Home of the Blues was really um, designed and built by Robert R. Church. And so she has really strong Memphis roots, but they also had the money to send her out for, for education. Didn't her father also, when there was a yellow fever scare and, and a lot of white people fled, didn't he kind of purchase some land that they Yes, exactly. To sell. So in the 1870s and 80s, when everybody was running from yellow fever, uh, he bought up property. And so that's how he's known as the first black millionaire, which may or may not be technically true, but he was definitely a very wealthy black man and uh, was able to really leverage that in an interesting way. It's such a testament to Mary's life that we um, – before we even get to when she's an activist and f- helping found these amazing groups, she's breaking barriers. She goes to Oberlin, which was – did admit women and African-American women. That's correct. But you still had to go on a different course than men. That's right. Most of the women who went to Oberlin um, in the – well, really in the 19th century were taking what was called the ladies' course as opposed to the gentlemen's course. And the gentlemen's course was a bachelor's degree. And the ladies' course would be more like an associate's of arts degree, an AA degree. And she insisted on getting the bachelor's degree and learning Latin and Greek. And in the end, she knew over six languages and um, ended up being uh, – she was fluent and studied abroad and even got not only a, a bachelor's degree from Oberlin but also a master's degree. So she was more well-educated than most white people in general, but also um, certainly of white women at the time. So she was quite an exceptional person. This characteristic that's, that is part of her that says, no, I'm not going to take the ladies' route. Yeah. I'm going to take the gentleman's course, really begins to show up when she becomes an activist. She's, I don't know, feisty is the right word, but but she's determined. And mm-hmm. she, she, if she sees a barrier, she gets through it. That's right. I called the book Unceasing Militant, and that title comes from an obituary that Paul Robeson, the um, labor leader and activist and also singer and actor, gave her in his eulogy for her, um, talking about how unceasing she was as a militant activist. And she's also known as being an elite black woman and seen as kind of the epitome of respectability. But I think sometimes she gets drawn too one-dimensionally, and people don't see that she's much more complicated than that, and that she did, in fact, uh, involve herself in many direct action protests from very early in her life, not just uh, at the end of her life, which is the time that uh, more people know her as having had that activism. She, she becomes uh, one of the, the loudest voices against lynching, working for anti-lynching. Hard to think now that you had to have anti-lynching legislation. What, what sort of helps her become more of that unceasing militant? Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, the lynching and anti-lynching le- uh, legislation, she and Ida B. Wells were inspired by the exact same event, which is that their friend, um, Thomas Moss and his associates were murdered because of a kind of conflict with um, white grocery store owners across the street from their grocery store. And it was clearly not about anything like the kind of false cries of rape or any of the things that usually were contextualizing lynching at the time. And for both of them, it was a wake-up call. (laughs) Like, this is about power. This is about white supremacy. This is about trying to destroy prosperous and successful blacks. And so they both decided to focus um, on anti-lynching, although Ida B. Wells focused on it much more intently. And Mary Church Terrell became a more generalized civil rights activist and took on many different causes as well. Suffragette um, yeah. um, aligned herself with with women who had been convicted of killing husbands right. in self-defense. That's right. I mean, she went into jailhouses and helped right. these women. That's exactly right. And one of the things to really think about with the story of her as a suffragist is that she was um, – 
somebody who had been characterized as agreeing in the 1913 National Suffrage Parade, the first major uh, suffrage march and activism, that it, it had been told that she marched in the back. And as I was doing my research, the more and more I learned about her, I thought that's just not possible, that she would have agreed to march segregated in the back of a parade. And uh, it was bothering me the whole time that I was researching and finally, I just thought, I have to turn my attention to this and figure out what happened. Uh, the story that's been told about the 1913 parade is that it was only Ida B. Wells Barnett who inserted herself into the Illinois delegation and insisted upon marching with them, which is, in fact, true. But what I found out is that not only Mary Church Terrell, but literally dozens and dozens of black women marched all the way throughout the march as it was organized by um, occupation and all kinds of other things things. And she fought on the day of the march to let herself and also the young black women who had just started a new sorority um, called the Delta Sigma Theta sorority to be able to march, uh, in their case, with the other white college women that were all grouped by college. And so Howard University's women wanted to march together. And they were allowed to do so, but it was a fight till the very day of the event to let that happen. But it was really gratifying to find out that she marched with the New York City delegation and not uh, so-called in the back. <laughs> she left a trail of journals and papers that are in the Library of Congress, right? Oh, she has an enormous number of papers. She was very much aware of the fact that black women don't get written into history. And one of the things that she did before the end of her extremely long life, she li lived until she was 90, uh, is that she uh, talked to the Library of Congress and there was one black librarian in the Library of Congress and she negotiated with him to get her papers donated there. And then there were more papers that she hadn't donated. And the family then donated the next set of papers to Howard University, where she and her husband had both taught. And so uh, she, some of her papers are there. And then when I started working on it, I also found out that her family still has some of um, her papers at Highland Beach, which was a bl black beach resort in uh, near Annapolis, Maryland, where Charles Douglas, Frederick Douglass's son, had actually set it up because he had been rejected from a white beach resort nearby. And so it was Frederick Douglass's house, Mary Church Terrell's house, and then uh, the poet uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar had the next piece of land. And so this was an area with quite a few illustrious blacks coming from the kind of D.C., Baltimore area. And um, they still own and live in her house. And so I was able to go to the house and visit and meet this lovely family and also see some of her more private papers, that, uh, like some love letters between her and her husband. And um, happily, as we were talking about the value of these documents, uh, they decided that they wanted to give those papers to a secure archive and uh, decided that they would like me to reach out to Oberlin College. And so those papers are now at Oberlin, and the library has been re renamed the Mary Church Terrell Library. So that was a very gratifying ceremony that they got to go to and I was able to speak at. And um, so that was a happy resolution for that. What is it like for a historian who's been working on this figure then to find some letters, papers you didn't know existed in her handwriting. What is that's you had to have goosebumps. It was incredible. And partly what was so amazing about it is that she has so many documents at the Library of Congress and Howard University that I was actually shocked that there could be a huge stash somewhere else. And so that was a, a part of the learning process for me is to realize, oh, there's might be something more no matter when you think you've read it all. Um, but also it was meaningful because they set me up at the Frederick Douglass House, which is a museum next door. And as I was reading the papers, one of uh, her diary entries said, I woke up this morning and looked out at the Chesapeake Bay. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in his living room looking out at the Chesapeake Bay. And it was just amazing to think about how close I was to this history and the people who she knew. There's no way we can talk about everything she did because she was a pioneer in in education, served on the D.C. Board of Education. Right. She, she helped organize, uh, you know, women in education. Uh, 
as you mentioned, co-founded the NAACP. She helps, uh, what, found the National Association of Colored Women. Um, But in the 1950s, past her 85th birthday, she's you know, working to desegregate restaurants in Washington, D.C. That's right. And that's a really interesting part of her life as well. When um, what I argue is that she's not introduced to direct action at the end. She's been doing that with her. She picketed the White House with the National Women's Party in uh, during World War One. So she's been doing this kind of direct action for many years, including uh, boycotting stores and the kind of don't Uh, don't shop where you can't work campaigns that were happening in D.C. in the 30s and 40s. But in the late 40s, she becomes involved in a campaign to desegregate the dime stores and theaters and restaurants in the district based on um, some folks having found these uh, 1872 and 1873 anti-discrimination laws that were still on the books. And so they said, hey, there are laws that say we can't discriminate in D.C. Um, And this went through the court system. But the way it went through is that she took an integrated group of people to this restaurant called Thompson's Restaurant to set up a legal challenge. Mm. And that court case um, went through uh, many, many levels of the court and ended up at the Supreme Court. And the year before she died in 1953, that case uh, she won. And D.C. was desegregated by court order. But that case isn't well known, even though it's just the year before Brown v. Board, because it only applied to the District of Columbia since it's not a state. So it doesn't have it didn't have the same kind of traction. It was almost like a local law. Um, But one of the things that's so interesting is that she was working with the civil rights Congress, which was a Communist Party-affiliated group, because they were the ones who were doing the more direct action and um, almost radical protests at the time. And she wanted to be sure that she could work with a group that was willing to not just do the lawsuits, but also do the boycotts and the picketing of the stores, which she participated in, usually dressed in like a fur coat in the winter and, um, uh, you know, her purse and gloves, um, looking as respectable as she possibly could because the 1872 law said that uh, these stores couldn't discriminate against respectable people. And so they made a point of wearing their Sunday best whenever they protested. Ah. Okay. So a contemporary of so many other historic figures, Ida B. Wells, Paul Robeson sings yeah. at her funeral. So she was known at the time. Are we thinking, is, is this a case of forgotten history, erased history? I mean, we should all know this name. Yeah. Um, One of the things that we haven't talked as much about, but I think might contribute to this lack of knowledge, is her time as president of the National Association of Colored Women, the NACW. And this was a group that was founded in 1896. And it was a significant organization. It was the first black national secular organization that was founded in the U.S. at all, Um, so not just the first women's group. Um, And it was really designed to do many things, network black women together across states to fight for their rights and for the rights of black men, and also to serve as a social and educational club that would allow them to advance their educations, including almost like adult education through book clubs and things like that. And um, their motto, which she embraced, was lifting as we climb. And people have characterized her specifically as the first president as being um, an elite, light-skinned black woman who was too far removed from the masses. And so when black women's history was initially um, really taking off in the 1980s uh, and from that point forward, people like Ida B. Wells she was seen as the firebrand who uh, people seemed to think was more relatable and more a role model of what we would want in an activist today. But I think what they were missing is the uh, understanding of just how radical Mary Church Terrell was, but also where she's coming from. So when she says lifting as we climb, she was enslaved herself, as were her mother, her father, and her her grandmothers. And so I think 
understanding that that is coming from a place of humility rather than disdain would be helpful in uh, understanding her better. And so part of what I've been trying to do with this project is round out her character and give her a more three-dimensional sense. Because if you see her one-dimensionally, people seem to have dismissed her along those lines. Alison Parker is the author of the book Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church Terrell. She is a professor of history and chair of the Department of History at the University of Delaware. She was on the University of Arkansas campus earlier this fall to deliver a Hartman Hotz lecture. She was a guest of the University of Arkansas's Department of History. Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 8, and noon to 6, Sunday, in downtown Bentonville. WalmartMuseum.com for more. The Arkansas Senior Health Insurance Information Program, RSHIP, offers free, confidential, unbiased, and educational advice for those needing to find the best Medicare Part D drug plan for 2023. EZ Spanish Radio and RSHIP will provide those speaking Spanish and Marshallese assistance with Medicare and how COVID-19 and Medicare coordinate during an event November 18th at the Springdale Civic Center from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. For information, insurance.arkansas.gov. This is Ozarks at Large. Later this week, a member of America's first family of jazz will perform in Fayetteville. Delfio Marsalis will perform with the Uptown Jazz Orchestra Sunday evening in Walton Art Center's Baumwalker Hall in Fayetteville. Delfio is a trombonist and band leader. And Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis recently reached him via Zoom in advance of his visit to Fayetteville. You're part of a well-known and well-regarded musical family. Was it always a foregone conclusion that you would go into the family business, or did you come to that decision on your own? Yeah, it seems that I kind of came to that conclusion. However, I'd say music was always around, and I don't know that I had anything else in mind. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as though, you know, we were the Jacksons of jazz and and Mm -hmm. our father was like, practice your horn or you're going to get in the closet and here's your horn and get in the closet and practice. You know, it wasn't that at all. In fact, playing music is what a lot of individuals in New Orleans at the time did. We had lots, almost everybody played an instrument. You know, Branford and Winton were together. They're like a, a year apart, so they were always hanging together. Mm-hmm. And I have a brother named Ellis who decided not to pursue music, but he and I were always together. Mm-hmm. By the time Jason came along, and I think it's funny, most of the musical families, the youngest brother plays drums. <laughs> and I think that's because it's just the easiest thing to get to have access to. Well, and then I'm guessing, you know, you run through all the other instruments, you realize, hey, we need a drummer to keep this all together. <laughs> well, Jason started off, you know, beating on the, the, the countertop and on the stove. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of how that started. But, you know, for me, I, I did see that, uh, you know, with Branford on saxophone, went and had his trumpet. Trombone just kind of made sense. Seems like that that really suits our personalities well, as far as what the function of the instruments are. This may be one of my own biases, but trombone on its own doesn't necessarily seem like one of the most popular of instruments. I mean, from my own observations over the years, it seems like trumpet, sax, guitar, or even drums have more appeal for aspiring musicians and for listening audiences. But what do you do to make the trombone interesting for everyone? Well, I don't know about guitar and drums in that respect, <laughs> but uh, I tell you, you know, the, the trombone players ha- have often been great band leaders mm-hmm. and organizers of music. If you think back to Tommy Dorsey or Glenn Miller, of course, J.J. Johnson, Slide Hampton. So I'd say as far as the instrument itself, the, the, a combination of a lyrical style and playing the New Orleans kind of style. I'd say that, that's a, a unique combination because a lot of the guys that play the brass the brass band the New Orleans style they play one particular kind of way yeah. and I like to and I like to put the, the modern the bebop in there too you know we coming to slay I'm so New Orleans I remember living the night walk meant that you was poke but nah 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 that's where all the new hippies want to go I'm so New Orleans buddy bowling blues in the birthplace of jazz our music be so funky make you shake your thing shake your face I'm so New Orleans I remember crawfish was a dollar twenty-seven a pound. 
shopping at the Circle Food Store. That's how our folk used to get down. I'm so New Orleans, we brass so hard, tickle all the teeth in your mouth. Bang, give them a little taste so they know just what I'm talking about. Come on. Your father, he was an accomplished pianist and music educator, and your brothers, they've been accomplished in their own musical careers. Was there or is there any sense of musical competition among your family? Yeah, I think there should have been more actual what we consider the sibling rivalry. Uh, And unfortunately, (laughs) well, it's not unfortunately, but I'd say that since I worked as a producer for Mm -hmm. Branford and Winton for a number of years, I didn't understand the importance or the value of a certain type of competition. But now when I'm creating CDs or recordings, it's specifically with them in mind. So I send it to them and say, all right, your turn. (laughs) (laughs) So do you and your brothers, do you get a jam or perform together very often? No, not so much because we have our own bands Mm -hmm. and that's one thing our father would get us together and we do kind of the family concerts. Uh, But at this point, like, for example, I have a new Mardi Gras CD coming out and I sent a couple of tracks to Branford and he played on it. And sometimes, you know, he'll need me to play on something like he he did a couple of Netflix movies. And over the years, we've done different things. I played on one of Winton's CDs entitled Congo Square. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I think we're really focusing kind of on our bands, you know, really keeping our own music uh, hooked up a certain kind of way. So you mentioned that you're also a record producer and you have been for several years. What excites you about being on the other side of the equation, being involved in planning and the overall construction of an album as opposed to just being a performer on an album? Yeah, that's just kind of a skill that I I had from an early age for some reason. And, you know, I've been involved with musical theater and putting on concerts and it's all kind of related. So it's all if you have kind of that overview of what things are, and the, the producer, the producer job is tough because you have to understand the vision of the artist and put the artist in a place where he or she can really excel at what they do. But at the same time, you want to make sure that the music has a certain organization to it. You know, so it's, you know, it's, it's just a different skill. So I'm working with like Branford, for example, it's, I'm trying to bring a certain type of structure. If I'm working with Winton, trying to make it almost less structured. <laughs> You know, making it sound, you know, it's hard to describe, but but have more of a realism than something that we put together like it, uh, in a computer or something. Yeah, yeah. So do you produce your own records or do you work with an outside producer? I have Branford has produced a little bit for me and an engineer that I've worked with for uh, many years, Patrick Smith, is involved. But for the most part, I'm doing the production, which is uh, it's tough. You know, it's tough to stand back from your own work. Right. And to, to not have a bias about it. Uh, so that's that's the thing. But I, you know, I, that's what I've, I've studied for and I, I've trained. So uh, I usually have some hand in the production of my CDs. So I've read that on a lot of the albums you've worked on, you record the bass acoustically rather than plugging it directly into a recording console, which to me, that seems a little counterintuitive since rock and roll engineers and producers in the 50s and 60s were trying different techniques to bring the bass more forward in the mix. But what does recording bass acoustically bring to a jazz mix that going direct doesn't? Well, you know, I remember when my daughter was young, we had a competition. It was a, a blindfold test. 
And we had homemade chocolate pudding and store-bought chocolate pudding. <laughs> and I remember she took one bite and she said, I can tell this is from the store. I said, how? She said, because I can taste kind of the preservatives and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and then when she tasted the real thing, she said, oh, okay, well, this is just what it is. <laughs> so uh, it's just a, we are, are naturally in tune to things which are, you know, created by nature in our natural. That's how our bodies are designed. Mm -hmm. So when you hear an acoustic bass, which comes from a tree, it was a living and it's still a living thing. It's way different than an electronic signal. Right. So if, if recorded properly, acoustic instruments have, that's the greatest sound that you can hear. And, you know, keyboards are cool. You can get different sound effects. In fact, now we do use keyboards. We even use electric bass. But to have that true acoustic sound, it's just a beautiful, you can't deny that beauty. Yeah. Well, I would imagine it kind of meshes a little bit better with all of the horns and everything else since they are also mm -hmm. acoustic as well. Well, that's the tough part. The tough part about the acoustic bass is that it's the softest instrument in the band. Right. And the horns are playing loud. The drums are playing loud. So that's always been the difficulty is really having a balance. It's much easier if you have that electronic signal. You don't get the purity of sound. But so that's what we're balancing. We're balancing kind of the purity of sound with the presence. And it's, uh, it's something that we keep working on. coming to Fayetteville soon with the Uptown Jazz Orchestra. It's a group you founded in 2008. Tell us a little bit about the ensemble and how it's evolved over the past 14 years. Well, we started off kind of what you call a repertory band, which means we're playing the existing repertoire, Count Basie and Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. And uh, a number of our players are not only from New Orleans, but they grew up in the brass band tradition, especially mm -hmm. Roger Lewis. We've got Roderick Paulin, Andrew Bayham. Uh, Terrence Hollywood Taplin. And, you know, these fellas for years were like, man, we need to bring in other repertoire other than what you traditionally would expect from a jazz orchestra. So now the range of music that we play is fairly extreme from the standpoint of we're going to start off with like some Fats Domino or Professor Longhair, start off with the party music. Mm. And then we can go, you know, play the bebop, we can play swing and then something modern. And then, of course, we have uh, excellent vocalists who come in and, and bring more of the popular element. So yeah. that's the thing for us is to really be able to play a number of different genres or styles with uh, proficiency. <laughs> with the Uptown Jazz Orchestra, is it a fairly stable lineup or do you have players circling in and out uh, over time? Yeah, we have the core musicians and we also, from time to time, this particular performance, we have a number of uh, people from other places other than New Orleans who are coming in. But the main thing is to have that core of musicians and then uh, to have the, the musicians who are not from New Orleans have a good understanding of what the New Orleans sound is. Because that's really what, what sets our, our band apart, is to be able to play with the New Orleans sound and the Kansas City sound and the Chicago sound. You know, we don't call it that per se, but that's, that's what it is. You yeah. know, if you play Charlie Parker, that's more our Count Basie. That comes from Kansas City. Is there something exciting about being able to play with musicians who weren't you know, steeped in that New Orleans tradition and have them be able to come in and just fit right in? Oh, yeah, that's great. I mean, the great thing about our band is like most of the guys aren't really jazz players. They're more like <laughs> funk and R&B kind of <laughs> players, like what they do. And I always say that, you know, when we're traveling, man, nobody's listening to jazz in the car. <laughs> it's just, 
you know, and I think that that's a beautiful thing from the standpoint of uh, that one jazz being American music can encompass anything, almost any type of music when played a certain way can be jazz or jazz can have those elements. So that's what we're trying to just let folks know. It's not a particular thing. It's not just the sound of the, the Duke Ellington or the Count Basie Orchestra or just the sound of Charlie Park. It could be almost anything. And we're trying to bring all these elements in. You know, one of our more popular songs is based on a, a song that was featured in a Spike Lee movie called Doing the Butt. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just where we come. You know, the guys are really, once we get to the funky stuff, that's when they really get excited. Yeah. So, you know, we love to play all of that and uh, have a good time. So you mentioned that you perform quite a wide uh, repertoire, but what else can people expect from the show when you perform here in Fable in a few days? Man, it's just a good time. That, that's our thing. And that's the New Orleans way people always say, what is it that people love about New Orleans music so much? And that's the fact that you know that at the end of the day, everything's going to be all right. And that's what you know, it's we, we aim for. And it's, it'll be a lot of different things and a lot of different emotions. But, it, you know, at the end, man, we're all having a good time and we throwing a jazz party all night long. That was Delfio Marsalis speaking last week with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis. Delfio Marsalis and the Uptown Jazz Orchestra will perform at 7 p.m. Sunday evening at Walton Arts Center in Fayetteville. You can find out more about the performance at waltonartcenter.org. And you can find out more about Delfio at dmarsalis.com. Hollywood comes to rural Ireland in the multi-award winning comedy Stones in His Pockets on stage at Theatre Squared through December 18th. When Irish townsfolk are cast as extras in an epic American movie and tragedy strikes, a hilarious clash of cultures erupts. 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Lake Lucille. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Kyle, have you ever been to Lake Lucille? I have. If I have not, I have no idea where that is. Okay. <laughs> Contributors today included Timothy Dennis and Jacqueline Froelich. Should point out, Matthew did not grow up gr- in Arkansas. That's true. You've only lived here for a few years. That's true. All right. Uh, yeah, Timothy Dennis and Jacqueline Froelich contributed. Matthew produced the show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Our brand new membership director is Brett Ratliff, who officially joined the staff yesterday. Welcome aboard, Brett. Yeah, indeed. We have another new show for you tomorrow at noon and 7. You can always find past shows and individual stories at OzarksAtLarge.com. Kyle, what do we have on the show tomorrow? Tomorrow we'll learn uh, what you should take away from the latest grades that have been given to schools in Arkansas. Yeah. We will also talk to Andrea Rogers, writer who lives in Fayetteville. She has a great collection of short stories called Man-Made Monsters. We'll also find out about the 2022 Friendsgiving. It's, a, it's an event organized by um, some folks who want to make sure everyone has a safe place for Thanksgiving. What a wonderful way to have a Wednesday show. Yes. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Matthew, I hope uh, you stay warm, you stay healthy. I hope you stay warm and healthy. We'll talk to you again very soon.